Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Um, our scripture this morning is from um, Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 26. Um, when I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him and his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if, if I only touch his garment, I will, be ma- I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter of daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put, put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all, all that district. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New King on a cold and bright winter morning. Thank you, Katie, for that reading. It's great to hear uh, your voice reading God's word. So uh, I wanted to start out this morning with just a brief statement of where we are in the gospel of Matthew. It's always good to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of where we are. Where are we? Well, we had uh, three chapters a while ago in which we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We saw the authority of King Jesus instructing his disciples on how to live in society as members of the kingdom of heaven. So that was chapters 5, 6, and 7. At the end of chapter 7, it says that when Jesus finished, his, the crowds were astonished because he taught with authority. So now we transfer uh, over into chapter 8 and 9. And chapter 8 and 9, if you look at the big picture, we see that Jesus starts doing a whole slew of miracles, right? A whole slew of miracles. Scholars say that there are three cycles of miracles in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. So three times Jesus does three miracles, then he does a little teaching, and then he says, follow me. And he does three more. So three cycles in chapters 8 and 9. It's really interesting. And what we see is we see people coming to Jesus. Jesus, the authority of Jesus, draws them to his person. And they fall at his feet and they're healed. 
So they're drawn to King Jesus. By his authority, they're healed. And then we see at the end of 9 into 10, it flips. Instead of being drawn to Jesus, now Jesus sends people out. By his authority, he sends people out. And isn't that true of your life and mine? We come to Jesus. We fall at his feet. We're healed from our sins by his death on the cross. And then what happens? (laughs) Jesus says, go, right? Go into all the world. Go and take my message out. So we come to Jesus and then we're sent. So today, what I want to do is just look at that third cycle of miracles. Each one of these miracles teaches something different about King Jesus and his authority. Today's message, two points, two points only. The authority of King Jesus is radically different and secondly, profoundly compassionate. Radically different, profoundly compassionate. So let me pray before I go any further. Uh, Father God, I ask that you would help us to understand more of your Son, King Jesus, through this passage this morning. Father, help us to see clearly who he is in all his compassion, in all his glory, Father. Open our hearts. Father, help me as I speak to make it clear to glorify your Son, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Okay, so if you have your Bible, either open it or turn it on. We're in um, Matthew's Gospel, and we're in chapter 9. And there's this question that comes up in verse 14 about fasting. But it really begins a little before that. We have um, Jesus, if you look at verses um, 9 through Uh, 12 or 13. We didn't read those, but from last week, Ben taught on this, we see that the setting is that Jesus calls Matthew, the publican, the tax collector. He says, follow me, and they go into a house, probably Matthew's house, and the next thing you know, there's a party. There's a feast, and they're all eating and drinking, and and what happens? There's, There's a bunch of Jesus' disciples there, There's a bunch of sinners there. There's a bunch of tax collectors. And they're all gathered around having food. They're at a table, and it says Jesus is reclining, and they're eating. They're having a good time together. They're enjoying each other over food. Remember that from last week? Yeah. So the Pharisees come in, right? The Pharisees come in, and they kind of want to bust up this party. And they say, okay, Jesus, what is up with you? Why are you eating with sinners? What are you doing hanging out with these people? And Jesus responds by basically calling out the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. He basically says, okay, those that are well don't need a physician. I came to call the, not the righteous, but sinners. And what he's really doing is he's calling out their self-righteousness, their judgment upon other people, the way that they, they had their religious traditions and morality. They were, they were looking down their noses at others, and Jesus calls them out. So that's the setting. That's how we begin this story. 
And it says in verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So I think it was at the exact same time, the exact same party, the exact same feast, when the disciples of John now come in. And picture it. Just picture what's happening here. These disciples of John the Baptist, they were followers of John. You remember John? He's the guy with the, with the hair shirt. He was out in the wilderness. He was separated from everybody. He wore a, sh- a shirt of hair, camel's hair. And what did he have for breakfast? Locusts. He ate bugs, right? So he lived a very demanding lifestyle in isolation, in the wilderness, and he went around and he yelled at people a lot, right? John the Baptist, great guy, but that's who he was, right? And they were followers. And they come and they say, you know, we're kind of living the same way. We're out in, in, in the wilderness. We're, we're living lives of, of tremendous self-denial. And we're away from everybody and we yell at people that come to us. But we come in, and you're having a party. We're we're fasting. Our life is defined by fasting, by mourning, by denial. And we come in, and here you are having a party. You're feasting. Do you see the picture? And I see Jesus there. And I see everybody around, and there's a table in the middle, and all the food, and there's, you know, turkey legs half gnawed, and people got food dribbled down them, and everybody's gathered around, and they're having this great time. And there's dishes everywhere, and there's Jesus. It says twice uh, in that previous section that he reclined at the table, right? I see him kind of laying back, and he's got food dribbled down. Jesus, he's, he's eaten his fill. And he's with his friends. And these guys come in to bust it up. And they say, what are you doing? These guys come in with their hair shirts and their, their bellies just famished. They're kind of burping up their breakfast to bugs. And Jesus, Jesus responds. And how he responds, he tells them three quick short parables, a verse each, three little parables. Jesus said to them in verse 15, first parable is about a wedding. The second parable is about clothes. The third parable is about wineskins. And I just want to briefly tell you what each of these things, what Jesus is trying to get across with these things. So the first is a wedding. See this verse 15. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then, then they will fast. So in those days, a wedding, a marriage, was an incredible multi-day celebration. It was a time of incredible joy and feasting and eating and drinking and probably dancing. And and it was a time of just absolute joy. And in this little parable that Jesus tells in one verse, he basically identifies himself as the bridegroom. And this draws on an Old Testament metaphor 
in which Jehovah is the bridegroom, the, the God of the Old Testament is the bridegroom, God the Father, and the bride is God's chosen people, Israel. So Jesus draws on that, and he continues that metaphor into the New Testament. The New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom, and you and I, the church, is the bride. And Jesus makes the point that it's absurd and inconsistent and incompatible for the wedding guests to mourn at this time. <laughs> the bridegroom is with them. Why mourn? Why be upset? Why cry? He's here with them. Later, he says, in the rest of the verse, when the bridegroom is taken, well, that's the appropriate time to mourn. So, so let me tell you three things about that. That's the parable. What does it mean? So three things. First, the kingdom of heaven has arrived in the person of Jesus, and it's not an appropriate time to mourn. Look at the situation. Jesus, their master, was with them. He was doing miracles uh, before them, validating his identity as Lord and King. He was teaching them. Words of life and beauty were dripping from his mouth. And there they were around him, celebrating together. The long-awaited Messiah had come. It's time for joy, not mourning. So Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here with you. I'm doing all the things I should be doing. It's a time to, to have joy, not mourning. Second, when, when is it time to mourn? Well, Jesus tells us. The time for mourning is when the bridegroom is taken away. Well, when is that? Well, the original Greek would imply that the bridegroom in this verse is taken away very abruptly, by surprise, almost by force. And so what could this be? Nothing but the cross. So Jesus is referring to the cross. That's when the bridegroom will be taken from them. He'll be taken and hung on the cross. Third, how long is this time of mourning? Jesus seems to say it's kind of a short period. He says, um, it's obvious that the time of mourning is when the bridegroom has gone away. When he's taken, that's when you mourn. Well, how long is this? It's the time of the cross is when he's taken away. Some people might say that the time of mourning extends until Jesus returns. And that you and I today would live in a day of mourning. I don't think so. Yes, on one hand, we long for the return of our Savior. We can't wait for the blessed hope. We can't wait to see his face. Over and over, Jesus talked about with parables about how, the, how the, the master will go away for a long time and then he'll come back. But is this a time of mourning? No. Over and over and over, the New Testament says that we have a time of joy as we wait for our Savior. So the answer is, the time of mourning is really relatively short. Jesus explains this in John 16. I won't read it, I won't go there, but in John 16, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall weep and, and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. You, ha you will have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
he's referring to him being taken away by the cross and then by his resurrection. So I believe that by the resurrection of Jesus, the mourning um, is, is turned forever to joy by his resurrection. So the mourning time is very short. It's really while he was dead in the grave for three days. After that is a time of joy. Okay, that's what that means. Now, what about the next one, the clothing? Jesus says, look, um, no one puts a piece, in verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So, the way that I understand this, I'm not a person that works with fabric very much. But my understanding is when you have old fabric, it shrinks over time. As you wash it, it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And then if there's a tear in it, the last thing that you want to do is put new cloth on there. Because you, you'll sew that patch on and you'll sew it up nice and tight. And then that new cloth will shrink the first time you wash it. And it tears the old. So you can't put new cloth on old fabric is what Jesus is saying. So what does it mean? Jesus is saying you can't take new cloth and patch up something old. The result is that it's torn apart and made worse. So what's Jesus getting at with this little parable? The new cloth, of course, is the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus. The old garment is the religious traditions of the people, those who are trying to gain God's favor by how they act, being good, being moral, being judgmental, having a lot of religious practices, uh, sacrificing their lives, what the Pharisees were trying to do. And what Jesus is saying is to follow me, to come under my authority, to be my disciple, you have to have a completely new garment, not some patched up old one. And then the third parable is the wineskins. It's similar to the clothing, very, very similar. The idea is if you have an old wineskin, it's, it's made of animal skin, and over time, it dries out, and it gets kind of hard. You put new wine in, new wine ferments, it expands. The old wineskin can't take it. It cracks open, and it breaks. And you lose the wineskin, and you lose the wine. Both are lost. New, the new wine is the new life in Jesus. That's what he's trying to tell us. The old wineskin is your old religious your, your crusty hardness, your self-righteous ways. If you try to fit your new life into the old practices, everything is lost. It splits open and everything is lost. So putting these two parables together, these second two, the clothing and the wineskin, you get something like this. Being under the authority of King Jesus is so radically different that it requires us to be clothed in new garments our new life in Jesus cannot be contained by our old lifestyle, our way of living, our way of thinking, our religious practices, our self-righteous morality can't contain our new life in Jesus. And so that brings me to point number one. The authority of King Jesus is radically different than what the people expected, than what you and I expect. Let's see how I'm doing on the time. I'm doing okay. I have four ways. I want to tell you four reasons why the kingdom of Jesus, the authority of Jesus is radically different. Four ways. Go through them very briefly. Number one, 
And they're all from this passage. I'm not making them up. I'm not going somewhere else. They're all taught in this passage. Number one, living under the authority of King Jesus is based on intimate fellowship with the king in community. Not isolation from each other, not isolation from the world, not isolation from the king. It is based upon intimate fellowship with the king in community. Why do I get that? Why do I say that? First off, when we hear the title king, we immediately think of distance. I think of, of, of the velvet ropes, right? We've got to stay back. We've got to have distance. And maybe that's how you think of, of, of Jesus. Maybe you think he's unapproachable. But look at the description back in verse 10 with Jesus reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners. And, and there was Jesus reclining with his disciples. He's in a house together with everybody. He's got his friends. He's got people he's witnessing to. He's got the world around him. And they're having a meal together. They're in community. It's intimate time with Jesus. It's a time to be around him. Over and over again in the New Testament, you see this picture of Jesus in the Gospels, surrounded by people, and they're eating and they're drinking together, and they're enjoying the person of Jesus. When you come to Jesus, when you put your trust in him, when you follow him, when you become a member, you become a member of the family of God, the church, and all that we do, all that we are, all that we believe are centered on us gathering around the person of Jesus and enjoying him. What are we doing here? Why are you here this morning? New King Church, why do we meet? I know it's hard during pandemic. I know, I know. But why do we do it? Because we want to be together. We want to sing about Jesus. We want to, we want to praise Jesus. We want to Speak to Jesus in prayer. We want to we hear about Jesus from the word. We want to do that together. And here we are. This is a picture of what Jesus is showing us at that feast. And what do we do? We have something that Aaron likes to call the feast of the saints. What are we going to do in a few minutes? We're going to remember Jesus in his death. We're going to partake of the bread, a pitcher of his body broken. We're going to drink of the cup, the fruit of the vine, a symbol of his blood shed. We're going to eat with Jesus. Do you not see that? What, that's what we do here. Community groups, same idea, a smaller group where we get together. I know many of us are on Zoom. I know it's hard. I'm sorry, but that's how it is right now. Be thankful we have that, right? Be thankful we have that technology. But we meet and we talk together, and we have a meal, and we get to know each other, and we fellowship, and we learn about King Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Jesus is there. He's there. Our Christian lives are lived out not in separation from the world, but in the world, where we gather together and we witness to Jesus. We celebrate Jesus. We worship Jesus. We enjoy a meal with Jesus. Living under the authority of King Jesus is based on intimate fellowship with the king and community. Point two, 
living under the authority of King Jesus, is based on shared joy, not on mourning. When we hear the word authority, the authority of King Jesus, we immediately think of harshness, like living under a dictator, and he's mean to us, and he's demanding of us. No, no. No, it's not a time of mourning. It's a time of joy. I could give you a hundred scriptures about the joyfulness of being a Christian. But I want to give you something else this morning instead of that to prove it to you. I want you to look around at the people here. I know it's hard. You can't see because of the mass. The joy that people have here at New King, the joy of the Lord is a testimony to the joy of the King. The people that come here week after week, you see the joy in their faces, in their eyes, in their life. It's palpable. I remember our first time here, my wife and I came through the door, and there's Lucy with that gigantic smile of hers. And she introduced herself, and she met us, And it's like, wow, she is cool. She had the joy of the Lord. Ten minutes later, we're in here, we're sitting down. It's time for the scripture reading. Who comes to the front? Lucy. I look at my wife. I give her the elbow. I said, look, there she is. Look at the joy she had just reading the scriptures. My friends, the testimony of the joy of the, the authority of King Jesus is right around us. Just look at it. Just look at it. Number three, living under the authority of King Jesus is based on new life in him, not patching up the old. Amen? The new life in King Jesus is so radically different that the old life can't be patched up. The old wineskins aren't going to work. It's so radically different that you know what the Bible calls it? New life in Jesus is like being born again. It's like being born a second time. It's like having a new birth in which you start over and everything is new. You have a new mind. You have new thoughts. You have new desires. You have a new love in your life and everything changes. The old doesn't fit anymore. And we look, sometimes we think of, of serving King Jesus and people say, I don't want to be a Christian, man. I got to give up all this stuff. I don't want to give up my stuff. <laughs> the funny thing, the odd thing about being a Christian is sometimes God takes that stuff away. You don't want it anymore. You look at those old clothes and you say, how could I go about dressed like that? Sometimes I'd come down for work in the morning and my wife would say, you're not going to work looking like that. And she'd march me back up and I'd have to change my clothes. <laughs> I get off on tangents sometimes. I'm sorry. But listen. Listen to me. When you put your trust in Jesus, those old clothes won't fit. They won't flatter you. And you won't want them. You'll say, it stinks. I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want that. So often, so often as Christians or looking at Christianity, we think we've, we've, we've got to be good first. We, we've got to be moral first. We've got to be religious first. And we use that as a way for God to accept us. We say, if I act a certain way, God will accept me. No, that's the old clothes. Friend, there's nothing you can do to be acceptable to God 
other than putting your trust in Jesus. It's His work we trust in, not ours. Those old clothes, throw them away. Get rid of them. Take them outside and burn them. Number four, living under the authority of King Jesus is based on growing in the sacrificial love of the bridegroom. Not a harsh, unfeeling authority of a dictator God. Jesus is the bridegroom. He gave his life for the church. He loved the church. It's his desire to nurture the church. And it's his desire to clothe the church in garments of white. The the relationship of a bridegroom and a bride is the most intimate relationship and that's how scripture describes our relationship with Jesus in the most intimate caring way and that brings me to my second big point the authority of king jesus is profoundly compassionate it's time to look at the miracles and there's three miracles in this, this little cycle. There's actually four if you're going to count, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's a, um, a ruler that comes in verse uh, 18. His daughter is sick and, and has died. And then in the middle of that, a woman that's been bleeding comes, and, and, and there's a miracle done there. And then there's two blind men that come, and Jesus heals them. He has mercy on them and compassion. And then, and then there's a, a man that's mute and... Uh, and Jesus heals him and he can speak. And I want to really focus on this, this first section. All of these show the compassion of Jesus. So verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. It's probably a, a Jewish, Jewish ruler of the synagogue. And... Um, he comes to Jesus, and he kneels before him, and he lays out the problem. He lays it out. My daughter is dead. And Jesus, in verse 19, immediately responds. He rose, and he followed him with his disciples. I can see the picture, Right? Jesus is still in the house. He's still at the table. They're, they're, they're just finishing up eating. Maybe they're having dessert. What do you suppose Jesus had for dessert? Tiramisu, uh, cream boulet. He's probably finishing up the last bite, and this guy comes in, and he says, my daughter's died. And Jesus takes the last drink, and he immediately, he immediately gets up, and he says, come on, guys, let's go. Immediately, instantly. He goes. Come on, fellas, let's go. We've got a miracle to do. So off he goes. And then he's interrupted. Verse 19, Jesus rose. He followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman, verse 20, who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to himself, if only I could touch his garment. I could be made well. Now, this is a woman, 12 years of bleeding, 12 years, spent all her money, 
spent all her money, and she says, if I can just, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch him. This was not a happy scene for her. Her life was 12 years of living death. She was shunned by society. She couldn't hold a job. No one could come into her house. She spent all her money. Everybody would be away from her, but she comes to Jesus. And she says, Jesus, to herself, if only, if only. And Jesus turns, and in compassion, he says, take heart, daughter. Take heart, daughter. Do you not see the compassion of King Jesus? He hears the whole story of 12 years of living death. Mark's gospel says that he, she fell at his feet and she told him everything. And Jesus says, take heart. Come to Jesus. Fall at his feet. Tell him your story. And Jesus, with compassion, will reach down and he'll heal you and he'll bring you into his family. And she's immediately healed. And now back to the other story. Here's where I get choked up. I have a daughter. And I can't imagine this situation. The man comes and says, my daughter's dead. And so Jesus goes. And, he, in, and in Mark's gospel, it says he goes into the house and he brings the parents in and, and he, he kicks out the professional mourners and he goes in and it says, there she is lying there. And I picture it, my friends. I picture it. My daughter was uh, 12 years old in the 90s, and in Mark's gospel, it says this, this little girl was 12 years old. Interesting, 12 years of blood, and this little girl, 12 years old, the time when you become a woman. And Jesus goes in, and I picture him going into her room. And, and I can't help but picture it, my daughter's room in the 90s. And there were stuffed animals everywhere. And there were posters I don't know who was then in the 90s. NSYNC, Backstreet Boys. I don't know who was on the wall. Maybe there's a poster of Ben, you know. I don't know. <laughs> and Jesus, look, look, look. Jesus goes in. He goes in and he comes up to the bed and there they are. They're all crowded around that little bed. And it says that he takes her hand. That cold hand. She's dead. He takes her by the hand. And Mark's gospel says that he says something to her. You know what he said? He said, little girl. Little girl, arise. Do you not see the, the tenderness and the gentleness of King Jesus? Do you not see that? He takes her by the hand. I see him in this picture taking her by the hand, leaning down and whispering in her ear, little girl, arise. And she immediately gets up and she comes to life. And then Jesus in Mark's gospel says, hey, give her something to eat. 
you know, a, a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios or something. She's hungry. And I love that. I love that. King Jesus rise, raising her from the dead, calling her little girl, and feeding her. And that's it. That's the story. What do we do with all this? What, what do we do? M- maybe you grew up in a church and you had a bad experience. I know churches can be very, very, very hurtful to people. Maybe, maybe you grew up and you were looking at Christians and they were hard and they judged you for how you dressed or, or, or your lifestyle and they hurt you. I'm sorry. We Christians mess up so much. We get it wrong so many times. But please hear me. If that was you, what you saw was not the kingdom and authority of Jesus as described in the New Testament. The authority of King Jesus is radically different. We enjoy intimate fellowship with the king. It's immensely joyful. We have complete acceptance based upon his works, not ours. Our relationship can be described in the most intimate terms as marriage. The authority of King Jesus is profoundly compassionate. Listen, I believe that in each one of us, inside each one of us, is a little child. A little boy or a little girl. Tim Keller talks about, many times, about fairy tales. Tim Keller is a pastor and a teacher, writer. He talks about fairy Why are we drawn to the stories of fairy tales? What is it about a fairy tale that draws us? Each of us, each of us has bitten in to the cursed apple. Each of us is lying in the sleep of death, and each of us is longing for the voice of King Jesus to come. We're longing for that prince to come and say, arise, wake up into new life. Do you hear him? Is he calling you today? Do you feel a tug on your heart? Do you feel a desire to be woken up from the sleep of death and to follow King Jesus? My friends, put your trust in Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. He has incredible compassion for you. Just like these people, come to the feet of Jesus. Tell out your life and he will raise you up into new life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his authority, for his kingdom, for the intimacy we have with him, for the joy. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your compassion, that you love us and you care for us.
I pray that if there's someone here this morning that is feeling the stirrings of the kiss and the whisper of Jesus, that you would finish that work, that you would see that Jesus went to the cross for them, that they would put their trust in Jesus and be saved. And for us that are saved, Father, I pray that we would afresh feel your tenderness, your mercy, your compassion towards us. Lord Jesus, you love us, and we love you. We pray in your name. Amen.